Let the earth hear his voice. Let the people rejoice. It's a great, great lyrics in that hymn. Love that one. You can turn in your Bibles to Second Peter. We're going to round out the end of chapter 1 today. And Peter's purpose here is threefold. So he's concluding his initial introductory section that Ben started and then David continued last week. And then he's establishing a foundation upon which his instruction is laid. And then he's setting the table for refutation of the false teachers among his hearers. And that begins in chapter 2. So let's read. I, we're going to read the whole of chapter 1 again because the whole thing is contextually important to see it all together as we do the latter half of it. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do, will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts." Knowing this, first of all, 
that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. And you say, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. And as it says here, it is sure and fully confirmed. And we would do well to pay attention to it. And that's what we seek to do this morning. We pray that it would be, your word would be to us exactly what it is, a lamp shining in a dark place, that it would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, as the psalmist says, and shine into the dark corners of our hearts and expose every sin and every wickedness, that it would be to us a fresh encouragement and strengthening, just as when a man walks out into the brightness of the sun in the daytime and is refreshed by it. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law, from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So he begins verse 12 with the therefore. And we always ask when there's a therefore, what is the therefore, therefore? The therefore is there for reminding us and giving us the consequence of everything that he's just said. So because his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, because you've been made partakers of the divine nature, because you've escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust, because possessing and increasing in these things keeps you from being ineffective or unfruitful, the, these things is that sevenfold list that he gives. Because whoever lacks them is blind and has forgotten he was cleansed from his former sins. Because if you practice these things, you will never fall. And because if you practice them, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom. So because all of these things draw a big circle around that previous paragraph and say, since this or because of this, this, what he's about to say. So because of that, several things here. And he says at first, I intend always to remind you, to stir you up by way of reminder. You may be able at any time to recall, same root word there, three times remind or remember. Verses 12, 13, and 15. And we're going to see that as a pattern here. Peter and threes. It's just a thing. We'll see why it's a thing because we're going to go back to one of his encounters with the Lord Jesus, I think that's why it's a thing. Uh, but he, I mean, it's replete throughout this, this whole passage, over and over and over, the threes. He keeps doing it. It's almost comical. You have to wonder, actually, if he even realizes he's doing it. I think he does realize he's doing it, but maybe there's some that slipped his mind and that the Lord just worked through him to put in there that he didn't even notice because there's so many of them. But remembrance is important to him here, and it's a constant theme throughout the canon of Scripture. It's a fixture both under the Old and the New Covenant administrations, particularly with respect to each one's redemptive hallmark. So in the Old Covenant, 
the Passover was the continual remembrance of the exodus from Egypt. And under the new covenant, we have the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. And so Peter seeks here to put them in continual remembrance of some of the magnificent truths flowing out of the new covenant and their consequent duties in light of those things that we heard about last week. And, and, and actually, it's a little bit, I don't like how the ESV takes some liberties here in changing the language to these qualities because it, it's, it actually just says in the original these. It's just these. So it becomes a little ambiguous once you get into verse 12 and, it's, and he starts saying these things because you're, you're, it's unclear whether he's talking about the list of these qualities that he's given or he's talking about all these things that he's just said. So we're going to stick with these things <clears throat> because that's the most literal. But he's seeking to put them in remembrance of these things. And we've got a a good number of hints here that he's remembering some things himself as he's writing this passage. <clears throat> a couple of things to note. So two, two things, at the very least, that he surely has in his mind as he's writing this, as he's encouraging them to remember. He is remembering these two things at the very least. And the, the first is his... The, his a pre-resurrection encounter that he has with the Lord, and then uh, the second is a post-resurrection encounter. And the pre-resurrection encounter is from Luke 22, when it's the denial prophecy. Jesus prophesies that Peter is going to deny him. And the second one is post-resurrection, that's when the denial's forgiven. So the denial prophesied and the denial forgiven. And I'll tell you why I think he's remembering these things. First, in the pre-resurrection encounter... It says this, the Lord says to Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen or establish your brothers. So Peter, Peter's doing exactly that here. How could he not call to mind the very command of the Lord when he's doing the exact thing which he was commanded? So he's fulfilling that command here. And it's the same word that's used in verse 12 when it says, you, though you know them and are established in the truth. That's the same word that the Lord used in the command to Peter. Establish your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. But he's saying they already are established. Why do they need to be reminded then? One commentary says this, Surely this is a solemn warning that is all too easy for those who have been Christians for some time to lapse into serious sin or doctrinal error. There is no safeguard against this except living in direct touch with the Lord and Savior. And Peter learned this the hard way. He was so confident so confident that he was well established and would never deny the Lord during that encounter in Luke 22. He said, I'll never, I'll go with you even to death. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth that you'll deny me before the rooster crows three times. Here in the next short while you'll deny me. So Peter proves this, but, but now he understands. He understands in a different way. 
and he's here to strengthen those who are already established. So certainly he's got this in mind, and then certainly he's got his post-resurrection encounter where his denials forgiven him in John 21. And he encounters the Lord Jesus, and we've got some threes here. This is, I think, where the three, the, the continual sets of three come from in Peter's writing, is this encounter in John 21, where the Lord asks Peter three times, do you love me? And then he responds three times, feed my lambs, or tend my sheep, or feed my sheep. And so we have Peter here using this word reminder three times. Now, if you really want to get technical, it's, it's very fascinating to see that when Peter uses this Greek word for remind, the first two times he says remind, it's the same exact word. And then the third time when he says it's translated recall, it's the same root word, but it's a slightly different Greek word. Okay, now if you recall, if you ever studied John 21, then Jesus uses agape two times, and then he uses phileo for the word love. So two of the same and one different. And then he says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. So we've got two times sheep, one times lamb. We've got two times feed, one times tend. It's just like this really fascinating kind of wordplay that the Lord's doing. <clears throat> but so Peter here's demonstrating the very thing that he's preaching, that he's endeavoring to teach them and for them to do. He's remembering. Surely he's remembering these things as he's writing this. And they're animating his, his thinking. It's, it has to be burned and etched in his mind and in his heart. These encounters that he's had, had with the Lord, moving him and driving him forward. Another thing to note about this text is the word he uses here twice when he says, in verses 13 and 14, when he says, this body or my body, he says, I think it's right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. Now this word literally means tent or tabernacle, my, my tent. It's the same root word that's used of Jesus in John 1.14. The word became flesh and tabernacled, tented among us. It is the same root word used at the transfiguration when Peter foolishly suggests making tents for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. But now it seems like he's learned to use the word in a better way. So the root is used there and in other places, but that this actual word, the exact word that he uses here for his body, my tent, it's only used three times in the entire New Testament. Twice here and once in Acts, referring to the actual tabernacle. So it's unique. It's a unique word. And he's emphasizing here the transitoriness. Transitoriness. I don't know if that's a word. I made it one. If it's not... The transitory nature of earthly life and the certainty of eternity. He's that's, his, that's why he's using this word, to teach that it's brief. It's just a tent. 
It's just a temporary dwelling. And you see, he concluded the preceding paragraph with reference to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And even that is a very unusual way of referring to the kingdom in the New Testament. It's almost never otherwise referred to that way. But he's emphasizing the certainty of eternity and how transitory earthly life is. So the body is a temporary habitation. Matthew Henry says this about it. The body is but the tabernacle of the soul. It is a mean and movable structure whose stakes can be easily removed and its cords presently broken. This tabernacle must be put off. We are not to continue long in this earthly house. As at night we put off our clothes and lay them by, so at death we must put off our bodies and they must be laid up in the grave till the morning of the resurrection. So Peter's body is soon about to be put off, his tent. It says here that the Lord made clear to me. The Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Where is that? Well, it's in, again, in the post-resurrection encounter of John 21. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So Peter knew that his particular putting off of the tent was soon enough, and certainly his recipients were not far behind, regardless of age, because relatively it's very so brief for all of us even for children, and so ours is not far behind as well. And maybe, you know, who knows when our putting off might be of the tent. Maybe tomorrow for you or me. We don't know. But even if it's in 50 years, it's still very soon. And so Peter's driving that home, emphasizing that here. This was a continual theme of his first letter. And he continues it throughout the second. Some spaces in the first letter where he emphasizes it, the whole, that whole first section of chapter 1 in 1 Peter. <clears throat> I'm not going to read it all. It says, at the end of that section, it says, maybe I need to read it all. I'm not, I'm not. <clears throat> in verse 6 it says, You rejoice now, though for a little while, a little while, if necessary, you're grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's the goal, okay? It's just temp, just temp for a little while. I mean, these kind of trials, we can't even imagine the kind of trials that he's talking about, and he's still saying to them, that this, that's just very small, And it's very temporary in comparison to the ultimate goal of the beautification of your faith that it might be to praise and honor and glory when Jesus appears. And then later on in that chapter, in verse 13, gird up the loins of your mind to be sober. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he says later on, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. 
temporary sojourning. He concludes chapter 1 of 1 Peter saying that all flesh is like grass and all the glory of man is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. He goes on in chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And then in chapter 4, verse 1 says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, the same mind, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Chapter 5, <clears throat> then he's speaking to the elders and saying something similar. He speaks of the glory that's going to be revealed in verse 1. And that's the motivator for them to act and behave in a certain way and to feed the sheep. And then in verse 10, finally it says, after you've suffered a little while, it's just a little while. Just a little while. 80 years is just a little while. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Why do established Christians need to be reminded of this because just as David said last week we continually live by the things that we see that we hear we are so dominated by the body by the flesh not even the flesh in a sinful sense just the flesh in the sense of this tent all the things that we see all around us, the happenings and goings-on of every day completely dominate us unless we live and abide here and are continually reminded of the brevity and the shortness of life that this is just a tent. We're just pilgrims here. It's such a short and a brief time and there's something so long and so much grander that awaits at the end. And it gives a special and particular kind of strength to remember this. Hardship and difficulty is much easier to endure when we know it is but for a brief time. And correspondingly, temporary pleasures are much easier to forego when we understand that we're trading them for eternal ones. So think about, I, I think about, when I think about this, I think about weightlifting because if you go, you know, and you know that you're only going to lift, I know I'm only going to lift for 30 minutes, then I can just go 100% for 30 minutes. And I can just beat my body and make it my slave to the point where I'm about to be sick and throw up because I know it's only 30 minutes. I'm almost done. But if there's no end, if there's no end cap, and I think, and I've lost sight, I've become short-sighted, near-sighted, like it says earlier, in chapter 1 of Second Peter, then it's going to be impossible. It's going to be so overwhelming. There's no strength because if I have to go on, if I have to lift for six hours, then I'm going to just conserve all my strength. I'm not going to be able to really pour myself out. And so the Lord gives us this hope and he gives us it's necessary to have this continual reminder even if we're established 
to remember the shortness of life and even the shortness of seasons of life, even the shortness of weeks or the shortness of days. If I can just be faithful today, then I lay down to rest and I have new mercies in the morning. Because the ultimate goal is that my faith would be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And that is such a strengthening motivator when I consider that and I'm in the midst of people in my house going nuts. And I can't even think or speak because seven people are talking all at the same time. And You know, you get caught up in those things, and that's the time to remember, to exercise, as David so eloquently put it, the ministry of memory. The ministry of memory. And so that's what Peter's doing here. And and these it's these remembrance of these eternal truths that helps us put on these qualities that he's that he's talking about. It helps you to put to practice those things that he refers to earlier when you remember these things. So he, one more thing to note is that when he says in verse 15, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Again, this is a very unusual word and an unusual way to speak about death, my departure. It literally means my exodus. That's the word, exodus. It's only used, this word is only used two other times in the New Testament. Again, three. Who's counting all the threes? Maybe there are 33 threes. I didn't count them all. There, I don't think there are that many. But again, the, the last word, when we said body, tent, that was only used three times. Two here and one another place. And then this word here, Exodus, it's used once here and then two other places. It's used in Hebrews 11, speaking of the actual exodus from Egypt. And then it's used in Luke 9, at, the, at Luke's account of the transfiguration, speaking of the Lord Jesus' crucifixion. He calls it his exodus that he must accomplish at Jerusalem. Now remember two things. Hold that, hold that thought, and remember these two things. Okay, in John 13, John 21 that we already read, Jesus prophesied that Peter would die in the same way that he did. So how fitting that Peter would use the same word to describe his death because he knew he was going to die in the same way that Jesus did. The second thing is, we must ask the question, why in the first place was Jesus' death called an exodus in Luke 9? Well, what was the most prominent fixture of the original exodus when the Lord delivered his people with a strong hand and outstretched arm? The death of the firstborn. Think about that one this afternoon. It's amazing. So back to the text When he says Exodus in verse 15, there's a corresponding word used earlier from verse 11 when he talks about his entrance into the eternal kingdom. That word entrance is Isodus. So there's his Exodus, his departure from this world, and his Isodus, entrance into the kingdom. Maybe you've heard the words 
you're familiar with those words exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis is where you study the text and you see what comes out of the text organically, what it means. Eisegesis is where you come to the text with an idea and you superimpose it on top. You come into the text with eisegesis. You come out of the text with exegesis. It's the same, it's the same prefix of the words used here. You come out, depart the body, and you come into the heavenly kingdom. Except here, they're both good. Eisegesis is not good. But Eisodus is good in the context that Peter's using it here. Entrance into the eternal kingdom. So it's the same. It's the same as the old covenant under the Old Testament. What did the Lord say that he would do to his people? I will bring you out of Egypt and into the land of promise. Moses brought them out of Egypt and Joshua brought them into Canaan and the Lord Jesus was the better of both. They were a picture of him. The Lord said he would raise up a prophet like you, like Moses, from your brothers. And then, you know, Joshua's name means Yahweh's salvation. He's the true Joshua. He's the better Moses. And there's a rest that remains for the people of God. He brings us out to bring us in. So how fitting, how fitting that just as Peter's about to appeal to two things, he's about to appeal to both eyewitness events and the Holy Scriptures to authenticate his message. How fitting is it that he ties in both of those things and weaves them in to his style of writing? Again, you just have to wonder how much was Peter, how much did he realize it was all the Lord, and it was all Peter at the same time. But how much did he realize that he was doing it? Many of the prophets of old wrote things they didn't understand and didn't realize they were doing. So Peter's about to establish here a twofold foundation for his instruction, as I just mentioned. There's the, the authenticity of the apostolic testimony is one, and then the certainty of the Holy Scriptures is number two. He's building a cascading case, an argument for what he said. So he gives these truths, he gives these qualities that must work out of those truths, and then he's proving that the apostolic testimony is valid and genuine so they can trust what he said about Jesus and the consequent demands that are made upon them because of that. And then at the bottom, he's appealing to the Holy Scripture, the prophecies of old that have been fulfilled, that he's been witnessing witness to. So he's got this cascading argument. And in addition to that, he's preparing here to refute the false teachers in their heretical doctrine in the next chapter. And incidentally, they have a cascading departure from the truth. They reject the plain teaching of Scripture. They rejected apostolic teaching, specifically Christ's second coming. We'll see in the next chapter. And then they rejected all of those virtues and things that were listed in chapter 1. They're marked by lasciviousness. It says that in chapter 2, they reveled in and were insatiable for sin. So it's a reverse cascade in departing the faith into false teaching. So look first, we'll look first at the assurance of the apostolic testimony. And what is he using for authentication He's using his presence at the transfiguration event. Let's turn to that and read it. Since we already talked about it some, and he's about to 
speak of it more at length here. It's Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. It says, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Hear him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything that they had seen. So that's the event that he is about to recall here. And it says in the following verse, verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. These aren't fables. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's somewhat unclear whether the power and coming is in reference to the first coming or the second coming. There's an argument to be made for both. The apostles had given declarative testimony of both. Obviously, the transfiguration was during his first coming, and much of what their testimony that they bore witness to was about his first coming, being the Christ. But we also see, the other hand, that false, the false teachers that he's intending to refute, they rejected the reality of his second coming. And the, and the word that's used there is actually a word that was often used to describe the state visit of a king. So it's unclear which of the comings it's referring to, but it really doesn't matter because the apostles testified to both, and he's referring to the apostolic testimony concerning Christ at large, his power and coming, his first coming and his second coming. And they were eyewitnesses of it, it says. Eyewitnesses of his first coming, eyewitnesses of his transfiguration, eyewitnesses of his majesty, is how he writes it here. So two things about the transfiguration that are notable. These are really amazing, especially the second one. The first is that the transfiguration is a convergence of the two advents. It's a convergence of the two advents. We have both the suffering servant and then we get a glimpse of the conquering king. He's, he's walking the earth in his tent, in his tabernacle, and then the, the tent is lifted up briefly to see his glory. So it, it mentions Moses and Elijah. They were present at it speaks of the resurrection. His divine majesty was visible in it when the, the earthly tent was lifted up and they saw his glory. Clothes white like no man could bleach them, it says. And then he received honor and glory from the Father through it by his approving voice. And what does the voice say? The voice confirms the sonship of Christ. But not just in any way. Now you miss this if you don't look at the footnote in, if you're reading the ESV and you don't look at the footnote from Luke chapter 9, but if you look at the footnote, 
it actually says in verse 35, this is my son, my beloved. My son, my beloved. This is an unusual way. It says some manuscripts say that, some say my chosen one. But right here, if you look at the, again, the footnote in 1 Peter 2, when it's quoting, it says this is my beloved son, but the actual, the literal Greek here is my son, my beloved. This is my son, my beloved. I think the translators took some liberties to try to make it fit in with the gospel narratives, but the Lord intentionally writes things differently like that sometimes, and he did it here, and Peter did it here, I think, specifically to tell us something. Now, the transfiguration, I said it's a convergence of the two advents, but it's also a convergence of the two covenants, the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant. Now, Peter, keep in mind, he's about to move to defend the authenticity of the Old Testament Holy Scriptures at the end of this chapter, the prophetic word that's more sure. And so he echoes in this when he says, my son, my beloved, he's echoing the continuity between the Old Testament scriptures and his own present message. We're about to see that. Just one second. Where does it, where does it occur? Where does it happen? Where does the transfiguration happen? It happens on a mountain. It happens on the holy mountain. Where was the sacrifice of Isaac? It was on Mount Moriah. Where was the sacrifice of Jesus? It was on Mount Calvary. Okay, now remember that phrase again. My son, my beloved. This is a unique authentication mechanism. If you flip over to Genesis 22... This is at least one of the reasons why he uses those specific words. Because in Genesis 22, three times, there it is again, three times in Genesis 22, when Abraham is speaking, the story of the sacrifice of Isaac on Mount Moriah, and Abraham is speaking, the Lord's speaking, and the Lord says, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. And three times he says that, your only son. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. But he says that. It's the, it's all, I mean, it's two different languages. It's Hebrew and Greek, but it's almost the exact same phrase. Your son, my son, my beloved. So he uses that here, and we know that Jesus is the true seed of Abraham, as Paul writes to the Galatians. If you look at the end of Genesis 22, where it says this, says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your seed shall all the nations That was really random. There's a cricket jumping around on my notes. <laughs> In your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Jesus is the true fulfillment of that. My son, my beloved. So he's established here the authenticity of the apostolic testimony, assuring them of it. And now he moves to confirm the scriptures, Old Testament scriptures, words of prophecy. 
a more sure, another translation says, or fully confirmed word of prophecy. It's the very word of God. So this is down at the bottom, at the base of his argumentation is the delivered word of God, the revelation of God that he gave through the prophets. Again, he uses that word prophecy three times here. Prophetic word and then prophecy and prophecy. The Old Testament was regarded largely in those days as prophecy. They would refer to it as prophecy because so much of it had, was yet to be fulfilled. Although much of it was confirmed and fulfilled in the lifetime of Jesus. But it's referred to that way here, prophecy. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place as the psalmist says your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path and we pay attention to it until until the day dawns and the morning star rises that speaks of the second coming of Christ until the consummation and the fulfillment of all things we must pay close and careful attention to the written word and he was adjuring them to do the same thing. It's unclear. It actually says in the text here, the morning star rises in your hearts, but there's no punctuation in the original, so you could read it. The morning star rises, comma, in your hearts, knowing this first of all. Knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Some translations may say that no Scripture is subject to someone's private interpretation. I think that's a poor translation of the text. Uh, that's actually the way that the Catholic Church tries to use this verse is to bludgeon anyone who would dare to interpret the scriptures differently than they would because they say, well, there's no way that an individual can interpret this. This must be done by the church, the authorities, and you take what we give you. You're not qualified to read and discern this yourself. But it really makes no sense. If you, if you follow the flow of Peter's argument in the text here, it makes no sense that he would suddenly jump to talking about someone's private interpretation of the scriptures. No, he's not speaking about the recipients and their interpretation. He's speaking of the authors, the prophets who wrote. It wasn't what was delivered to them by the Lord and what they wrote was not subject to their own interpretation. They wrote what they were given. The scriptures didn't emanate from the mind or imagination of men, but fascinating, nevertheless, God used men what an incredible mystery that it didn't come from men, but he chose not to do it apart from men. And how? How did he do it? It answers in the next verse. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now that's a really interesting phrase. That phrase is used, the phrase carried along, that phrase is used in Acts 27 when it's used this way. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. 
or carried along. Running under the lee of a small island called Queda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground and assert us, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. They were carried along. So it speaks of a ship opening its sails and being blown and moved along by the wind. That's how it's describing these men of old who wrote the inspired scriptures. They opened their sails and the wind blew through them and moved them to write those things. That's the word picture that the Lord gives is the best way of understanding it. We try to describe things our own way and come up with clever inventions of how to talk about the great mysteries of how these things happen. But the Lord gives us, it's a clear enough picture as it is. There's a boat with sails and the Lord blows the boat in a certain direction. The boat's going, the boat's moving, it's doing its thing, but it's the Lord blowing it. And so were the men who wrote the scriptures. They had thoughts. They didn't just, they didn't just empty their minds and the pen just moved. They thought and they, they had feelings and desires and they made choices about what they wrote. But all the while, it was the Lord carrying them along, keeping them from any error or any sort of imperfection. Fascinating. They were carried so that we might not be carried along as it says in Ephesians that he gave the apostles the prophets the evangelists the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the Lord carried, he carried them along so we could have this sure and steadfast prophetic word and we might not be carried along by all the wind and waves of doctrine and Matthew Henry says this concerning this passage these holy men were moved by the Holy Ghost in what they delivered as the mind and will of God the Holy Ghost is the supreme agent the holy men are but instruments the Holy Ghost inspired and dictated to them what they were to deliver of the mind of God he powerfully excited and effectually engaged them to speak and write what he had put into their mouths. He so wisely and carefully assisted and directed them in the delivery of what they had received from him that they were effectually secured from any the least mistake in expressing what they revealed so that the very words of Scripture are to be accounted as the words of the Holy Ghost and all the plainness and simplicity, all the power and virtue, all the elegance and propriety of the very words and expressions are to be, are to be regarded by us as proceeding from God. Mix faith, therefore, with what you find in the Scriptures. Esteem and reverence your Bible as a book written by holy men Inspired, influenced, and assisted by the Holy Ghost. So, Peter's established here. They can trust what he said. They can trust what he said. They can trust what he's about to say. 
in the upcoming chapter, in the remainder of the letter? And how much more can we trust? Seeing they had so much less than we have, and we have so much more. We can see so much more clearly the authenticity of the apostolic teaching and the more sure prophetic word in the Old Testament, having, being able to look back and see all the prophecy and the fulfillment. It's all history to us. We can see both. And it should be something that we continually lean upon and lay upon and stake our lives with and in. And so these things, these things, these things, as Peter said, must drive us to greater faith and more resolute action as he describes at the first. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we marvel at how masterfully and wonderfully you've written your word. Even this small section, which we've just examined, all of the intricacies and all of the mysteries in it, it's an incredible thing. A man could spend years, decades, centuries plumbing the depths of your word and still we wouldn't reach the bottom. And yet, it's simple enough for a child to understand and for us to see the basic truth that you have loved us and not withheld your son, your only son, so that we could be redeemed with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. And we have the promise and the hope of an eternal inheritance of our exodus and our isodus into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we have these things to help us, to strengthen us, to carry us along as we look to put on all of the things that Peter's mentioned at the beginning. May we be such people. Keep us and put us in continual remembrance of the brevity of life, of our tent, of our tabernacle, that our time is short and our exodus is soon. And may we pass the time of our sojourning here in fear and be holy as you are holy and put on all these things and be strengthened to do it knowing that it's such a short time, such a little time. And may the faith of each person in this room be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Amen.